When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 2009, director Mark Webb and star Joseph Gordon-Levitt gave the world a bleak yet beautiful look at the modern world of dating. In 2019, Heaven Hill gives us an 80-proof bourbon that they hope is beautiful as well. The film is 500 Days of Summer. The whiskey is Heaven Hill White Label. And we'll review them both. This is The The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 2009 film, 500 Days of Summer. We are also in the final week of our six-week series, The Summer of Bourbon. We're going out with a bang. We said, you know, a long time ago, Heaven Hill Green Label was one of our favorite bourbons. So we're trying out the Heaven Hill line again today with the White Label, and we'll see how it wraps up our Summer of Bourbon. And remember, this is also, not only are we in the Summer of Bourbon, Bob. Yeah. We are in the middle of the bonus bonanza. Bonus bonanza. So many bonus episodes. Guys, we want to hit you with so much content as we possibly can. And as I said last week, we are having so much fun we really filming, are. filming <laughs> recording this podcast. We are. Yeah, absolutely. Like, we love doing the bonus episodes. We love doing the regular episodes. We love doing the Instagram posts, the Twitter, the, all of this. We're having so much fun bringing you content. That we want to give you five straight weeks of the most content you can possibly imagine. Absolutely. Notice we didn't say it was good content. We just said we're giving you content. (laughs) You're getting it. (laughs) So today's movie is 500 Days of Summer, currently celebrating its 10th anniversary. I cannot believe, first of all, that it's been 10 years since this movie came out. So we're hitting that point where, like, when I think about The Lion King, it makes sense that it was 25 years ago, because that came out when I was a little kid. Yeah. But, like... Things that came out when I was in college? Yeah. 10 years ago? I can't believe it's been 10 years. So this movie, again, 2009, directed by Mark Webb, starred Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel. This movie won zero Oscars. Yeah. This movie was nominated for... Zero Oscars. Zero Oscars. I feel like we have had a run of movies winning very few or no Oscars at all. Right. I mean, Pulp Fiction last week won one. It won one. And did Lion King win things? See, I don't know, because they didn't have Best Animated Feature at that Uh, point. I think it probably won something for Elton John. Yeah, you know, being Elton John. Exactly, but that's that's about it. So we're on a roll here with movies that the Academy overlooked. Yeah. Brad, had you seen 500 Days of Summer before this viewing? I had seen it exactly two times. Okay, so this was your third viewing. And I had actually watched it about two to three months before this showing. So So it's still pretty fresh in your mind. Very recently watched this movie. Okay, cool. Well, that will help us with our next segment because it's time for Brad Explains. Brad Explains 500 Days of Summer. Tell our audience what this movie is about. 500 Days of Summer 
is a modern dating drama. Mm -hmm. It is a story about a young man who's living in L.A. Not going to lie, I thought it was New York for a long time. (laughs) Living in (laughs) L.A. Of course you did. (laughs) So Joseph Gordon-Levitt is a young greeting card writer that was aspiring to be an architect, but, you know, life happens. He's a greeting card writer. Yep. Which... I think translates really well to how a lot of millennials feel today. That's fair. So long story short, he's a greeting greeting card writer. He believes in love at first sight and the movie, you know, happy ending sort of thing. Zoe Deschanel plays a young woman who is jaded by the world, doesn't believe in love, believes really in flings and just having a good time, but nothing is really real. And it's just a story about how they meet and they date, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt falls in love, and she doesn't. Yeah. And that's it. And I as mean, the narrator so- says at the very start of the movie, this is not... A love story. A love story. Exactly. Now, as we proceed with this movie... Can I, can I just say... Get like, it out of the way now. Go ahead. That's a record for, like, shortest that was a Brad great. Explains. That was a great Brad Explains. Yeah. It was great. Now, I have a feeling, up front that I am going to be defending Summer more than you will, right? That's because Summer <laughs> is the worst human being. So here's the thing. I am not pro everything Summer does, but I also think that there's a way you can watch this movie where you dump all the blame on Summer, Zoe Deschanel's character, and none of the blame on Tom, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. The first time I watched this movie was after the biggest breakup of my life. And I was told that this is, quote, the perfect breakup movie because Summer is the worst. That See, and that framed the way you watch this movie. For sure. So I think as we go into this movie, Brad is definitely Team Tom. And I think for the sake of argument, I kind of have to be Team Summer. That doesn't mean I, again, in real life, I don't think I support everything she does. Right. Um, but this is a movie that's about the ins and outs of a relationship of young people. And it's a movie about people that have different expectations. I That's probably the best way of putting it. Absolutely. Expectations define so much more of our lives than we realize. Yep. And this movie puts that at the forefront every single scene. Yeah. So I want to start talking about the way the movie is set up because the director, Mark Webb, um, you know, let's just talk about him for a second, because after this movie, it was a hit and he kind of blew up and Sony approached him and said, hey, Mark Webb, you seem like a hip up and coming director. Why don't you direct the next two Spider-Man movies for us? And boy, then, oh boy. And then he made the two worst superhero movies ever. And now Mark Webb is not doing so hot. Those are the amazing Spider-Man. Both of the amazing Spider-Man movies with Andrew Garfield, mm. which were just just absolute turds. You know, I refuse to watch those. They're so bad, dude. Yeah. And I feel bad for Mark Webb because I think when he was doing this, he had a lot of freedom with what he was doing in this movie. For and sure. when when you watch it, you see a filmmaker who's having fun. He's playing around with form. I mean, he's making homages to these like foreign movies. He's doing black and white. He's inserting musical numbers and animation. Well, speaking of musical numbers, the the most interesting thing to me in my research was that he wasn't 
quote unquote a movie director before this. Yeah, he did some music videos. He did. He literally had done music videos, and you can see that in the way he films a movie, but not in a bad way or anything. Sure, you just see that he brings music to the forefront of the movie to draw emotions out of the audience. Yeah, I will say flat out, this is one of the best soundtracks for a movie I have ever heard, and not like the orchestral piece, but the chosen music that yep. they put into the movie is so good. Regina Spector. Yeah. Simon and Garfunkel. Yes. And and it's very clear that Mark Webb knows how to sync a piece of music to what's happening on screen. It reminds me of Baby Driver, of how well Absolutely. they sync Edgar music Wright. to yep. what's going on. Yep. So I want to talk about the way this movie is set up, because right at the beginning, we have a narrator. It's almost like the beginning of Anchorman. So the beginning of Anchorman, or I don't know if it's the guy's voice, I all I could think about the way he narrated was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, interesting. Do you know the narration? For yeah, that? yeah, yeah. Okay. The narration for that felt, you know, part and parcel the same as this narration. I loved it. And the narrator comes right out and tells us, "You may think this is going to be a story of boy meets girl, and it is, but I'm telling you up front, this is not a love story." Yeah. And the the thing I love so deeply about this movie is that at every single turn, it sets itself up like a romantic comedy. It plays the Nora Ephron book. It it's it's when Harry met Sally, and it's all these things. And then it reminds you, no, this is not how it works in real life. Things happen where people have different expectations, like we already talked about. And it, you know, I, I keep using this phrase week in and week out, I feel like, but it subverts your expectations. Every time you think Tom being this like idealistic hero is finally going to get through to summer and make her be romantic with him, you're reminded that, no, that's not how it works in real life. And sometimes people aren't like that. And that's OK. Yeah. And but when you watch it in a romantic comedy like this, you get pissed off because you want them to end up together. You want them to be having a meet cute and falling madly in love. But again, that's not the way it shakes out in reality. I think the scene that perfectly illustrates that is when they're at the bar and the dude is just viciously hitting on her in a predatory, like just terrible fashion. And she's like rebuffing him very clearly. Yep. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt punches him in the face. He gets punched back. Yeah. And she freaks out. Like, why did you act in such a way? Right. In any other romantic drama, notice that I didn't say comedy. Yeah. In any other romantic drama, she would have swooned over oh, yeah. him He's for defending hero, her right? honor. Yep. It happened. Like, it felt like it happened fast, but really, it, it also felt like it was happening really slowly. Like, everything all was just... No, it doesn't feel like you think it would. Hey, what's the matter? I just, I can't believe you. You can't believe me? You were so completely, completely uncool in there. Wait, wait are you mad at me? I just got my ass kicked for you. Oh, really? Was that for me? Was that for my benefit? Yes, it was. Okay, well, next time, don't, because I don't need your help. You know what? I'm really tired. Can we talk about this tomorrow? No. You know what? I'm not going anywhere till you tell me what's going on. Nothing's going on. We're just... What? We're just what? We're just... No! Don't pull that with me! Don't even try to... 
This is not how you treat your friend. And they and they continually set you up for Tom to be the knight in shining armor. Yeah. And Zoe Deschanel saying, well, I don't want a knight in shining armor. But here's the thing I love about it is that it doesn't make her a bad person to say right. that. What it does, what I love about this movie is that it, from the very beginning, is indicting us as guys, me and you as guys, who have grown up watching too many movies and too many TV shows. At the very beginning of the movie, it says... Tom's whole perception of what it meant to be in a relationship was based on a misreading of the movie The Graduate. Yeah. And if you've ever seen the movie The Graduate, it's about Dustin Hoffman basically uh, falling in love with this girl that he finally gets at the end of the movie and that he has to steal away from her wedding. And they run away at the end of the movie. They get on a bus. And the last shot of the movie is them looking really happy. And then after about 30 seconds, kind of starting to realize this might be a huge mistake. And Tom reads this movie as super romantic and summer reads the graduate as super tragic. Yeah. And what I love about this movie is that it doesn't let you fall into those old cliche tropes. We want to see summer swoon when Tom punches a guy for her. But in reality, why did Tom feel the need to punch a guy? Like there's something within us as guys that we've been told by society, by movies, by media for so long that we have to do certain things and that the reaction that we expect is a swooning woman in our arms. And right. this movie's kind of here to set the record straight a little bit. And that's kind of what I love about it. I will say I I would take a little bit of issue. I wouldn't necessarily place the blame on you and I personally. Well, sure. That in the sense that it it is the culture that has said you need to punch a man in the face if he's hitting on your woman yeah. at a bar. Yeah. And I go, well, if if I end up punching a guy in the face over that, is that me or is that the culture that's taught me to do that? Probably a mixture of both. Right. But there is that essence in this movie of what does it truly mean to be in love? Yeah. And the interesting thing to me is that the final conclusion of the movie is that love truly is intangible. Hmm. That it doesn't always make sense. Because you would think the way that the entire movie happens, it continually bombards you with the fact that Tom is wrong. Yeah. That you don't just fall in love at first sight. That you don't just wake up one morning and realize, oh, I'm in love with them and I'll never leave them. Yeah. She literally says the exact opposite. I can't guarantee you that I won't wake up one morning and not be in love with you anymore. Well, and, And yet at the end... What does she say? I just woke up one morning she, yeah. and realized. And she says, Tom, you were right all along. Yeah. It just wasn't with me. And yeah. that's kind of what makes this movie so good is that you have these really nuanced, complex things at play where, yes, Tom was misguided or Tom was misreading things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that his view on love is wrong. It was just it was with the wrong person. Right. And I and I think that's I think that's where I Man, we're getting into like analysis of the movie. Already. I know, I know. One of the things I struggle with is that I part of me wants to agree with the final conclusion of the movie that you don't know when it's going to hit, but when it does, you know it's right. Yeah. There's part of me that wants to say you make it right. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like once I you that. find somebody that you fall in love with, love isn't just a feeling that hits you like a lightning bolt. It's a choice you make day after day to be loyal to your one person, your one partner. Yeah. That you choose that day after day after day 
And by choosing it for 10 days in a row, your love is deeper on the 11th day than it was on the first day. Yeah. And by choosing it for 1,000 days in a row, your love for that person, because you've chosen them for 1,000 days, is deeper on that 1,000 and first day than it was on the first day. Yeah. So I I kind of struggle with the final conclusion of the movie, but... Yeah. Let's talk about acting performances. I don't know. <laughs> well, before we get there, I want to I want to talk about the reason that I, I get defensive of Summer is because I think that people do misread this movie sometimes. And it's because the movie puts us in the position of Tom. Like Tom is the stand in for the audience, 100 percent. But what I've noticed with people who don't like this movie is that they're willing to sympathize with Tom, but they're not willing to take the critique of Tom on themselves. So like this movie treats us as if we're Tom, right? Like we go into this movie as audience members, having seen a thousand romantic comedies, we are just as naive and idealistic and ultimately as ignorant to the truth as Tom. Like we want this movie to be a love story. Even when there's a narrator telling us up front, this is not a love story. And so what my worry is with this movie is that when I talk to people who don't like it, what worries me is that they don't understand sometimes that it's completely intentional that Tom has to learn a lesson and that I think the movie's trying to teach us as audience members a lesson as well. What is the lesson though? Cuz the more I think about it, the more like the more I feel like it's just two people have to link up at the same time. Yeah. Tom linked up with Zoe De Chanel and thought that she was his love. Yeah. And if she had thought the same thing, then he would have been right. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, it's kind of this story of like, well, you just have to find the right person. Well, if she had thought that he was the right person, then they would have been. Right. I guess my, my thought in the end, I, I didn't think I'd hit this place so early, but I really do struggle with the final conclusion of the movie. Yeah. That it is fully randomness. Hmm. To me, that's almost what it feels like. I don't know if I if I agree with the, the fact that that's the conclusion. And I think we'll get there as we go. But we, we really do need to back up. We, we dove deep really quick on this one. And I want to talk about the acting performances in this movie. Because it really is two main characters and then a bunch of supporting actors. But let's get into the main characters. What did you think of Joseph Gordon-Levitt in this movie as Tom? I absolutely loved his performance oh yeah oh i have a i have a little bit of a crush on him i'm not gonna lie after watching him in this movie yeah he's adorable he just brings to life the exuberance of young love that i don't know if i've seen in another movie yeah now i will say i think this movie owes a debt of gratitude toward jim halpert because tom has that like kind of scruffy but still professional hair shaken up but yeah. wearing a collared shirt Jim Halpert thing going on yeah and and that had started in 2005 yeah the office was in 2005 so like that so was season four or five six we're like peak office at yeah. this point yeah for sure so I think they definitely owe a debt of gratitude thank to, you John Krasinski thanks John Krasinski but I really do love Joseph Gordon-Levitt in this movie he plays it earnestly do you know what I just realized I feel like Spider-Man 3, Tobey Maguire, yeah. was like trying to be Tom? Joseph Gordon-Levitt Interesting. Tom. Yeah, yeah. Like specifically, I'm thinking about the scene where Tobey Maguire is like walking around real doing cre- the dance. creepy in yeah. the dance compared to the band scene, <laughs> the musical number. Yep. And- Do you know what's really funny? 
is that I wrote down in my favorite scenes that obviously that's one of my favorite scenes. And I put, it is so much better than the Spider-Man three dance. Scene. <laughs> that was no, my, you didn't. I, I'm telling you, I'll show you it on my notes better than Spider-Man three for sure. <laughs> that's what I wrote down in my notes. And I would agree with that. Yeah. Like that just popped into my head of like, I feel like Tobey Maguire was, and that came out before this, but right. I feel like but, what he was aspiring to That's what they were getting at. Yeah. What I love about Joseph Gordon-Levitt in this movie is that he plays it so earnestly. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. And it's yes. not that... I mean, I think that in some ways he is kind of willfully ignorant. Like, he is ignoring signs. For sure. But it's not because he's doing it maliciously. He just really thinks, if I keep doing these things the right way... Summer is going to fall in love with me. She's going to fall in love with me. Yeah. It's like a formula for him. And then on the other hand, we have Zoe Deschanel, who I also think is freaking fantastic in this movie. Because if you've seen her in anything else, she brings a level of complexity to this character. She she acts this character differently than anything else you've seen her in. If you've watched New Girl, this character is nothing like Jess from New Girl. And Jess yet, is Tom. And yet she sells this character. Yes. She really does. Yeah. What did you think of her? I loved the way she played. She had a secret at all times mm. that Tom was always trying to figure out. Yeah. He never could. Yeah. And you see when she's married at the end of the movie to somebody else, yep. you see that that secret has been unlocked. Mm. Like that was the thing that hit me is that there was a sense of depth to her eyes that hadn't been fulfilled yeah. throughout the whole movie that when she's married, you see that she's satisfied. And there's, I, I don't know how she did that, but it was beautiful. It's great. It's it a phenomenal. great performance. I do want to talk for just a second about the relationship between them. And, and I think the script is brilliant. I think the way it skips around in time, you know, we talked last week about Pulp Fiction and how it jumps through chronology. This is like Pulp Fiction on speed. Like it's, for, yeah, it's all over the place. Sometimes it's saying day 477 and a half. Yeah. Through, like, yeah, it's insane. And then it jumps back to day three. Yeah. But what the script does really well is that I feel like it does give the characters really good motivations. And there's this one scene. It's the first time that Tom takes summer to his favorite spot in the city in Los Angeles. And they're sitting on a park bench and he's telling her about why he loves the view. And Tom says, there's a lot of beauty here. I wish people would notice. I would make them notice. And I wrote down immediately. Well, if that's not a character motivation, I don't know what is, because it encompasses everything about his character. He wants to make Summer see things the way he sees them. He wants to make her be this hopeless romantic that she just isn't. And Tom's whole character is, I see beauty here. I see something that maybe you don't. And if it was up to me, I would make you notice. Yeah. So, Brad, we talked a little bit about the chronology and things like that. I thought that the like the whole gimmick of the movie is that their relationship literally is 500 days long and that we jump back and forth between different days of their relationship. And the cool thing is that it's not just their dating relationship. No, it includes breakups and, and getting back together. And and it really concludes when he actually moves on. Yeah. And so and I love that because even in that sense, this entire movie is about Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It is. It's about Tom. It's about his viewpoint on things. And you hit that 500th day, Minka Kelly walks in, and he's moving on. Yep, and it's day one. And her name is Autumn. Autumn. Maybe maybe the most eye-rollingly bad thing in the movie. For sure. But, but yeah. What's, what's your name there? <laughs> Autumn. Autumn. Okay. <laughs> 
Tom had finally learned there are no miracles. There's no such thing as fate. Nothing is meant to be. He knew. He was sure of it now. Tom was... Sorry, um, I just left, uh, can I... One second. He was pretty sure. Hey. You again. Yeah. I, uh, was just wondering if maybe after this, if, um, you want to get some coffee or something. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sort of supposed to meet someone after this. Okay. Sure. What's up? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> okay, well then I'll just, uh, I'll wait for you. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. My name's Tom. Nice to meet you. I'm Autumn. So I wanted to ask, though, because they do this really cool thing where every time they show what day of the relationship we're jumping to, it's against this sort of illustrated background of like a tree. And depending on what phase of the relationship is, the sun in the background is either really bright and the trees full of leaves or like. It's grim looking and the right. tree is bare. I thought those little interstitials were a really cool thing they did. Yeah. But Brad, I want to ask you, what sort of fun director flourish in the movie did you really enjoy? I'm going to give you my favorite and least favorite. Okay. Let's start with least favorite. Absolutely least favorite was the stupid blue bird during the band <laughs> during, scene. During the I make, I'm you make sorry. my dreams come. That was so funny. That was terrible. That was so bad. But it's all a fantasy anyway. I know it was like a Snow White reference. I thought it was hilarious. Oh, I hated that with a passion. Oh, that's so funny. My absolute favorite part was when he's at the lowest of the lows and he walks out into the street and he's walking down the center of the street and the entire world turns to Mm. like a stencil drawing around him. And then that stencil drawing slowly disappears and you just see him. That was my absolute favorite use of... I don't know, a not normal movie yeah. medium, yeah. if you will. Like an artistic touch, I yeah, guess. An yeah, an artistic touch. That was because it isolated Joseph Gordon-Levitt yeah. in a way that you can't do with a normal camera lens. I want to talk about that scene because it's the most famous scene in the whole movie, that whole sequence. And it's after Tom and Summer have broken up. They have... They meet up on a train on the way to a co-worker's wedding, and they kind of rekindle their romance, or so he thinks. And this part is so hard. She invites him over to her apartment for a party. And then we get a fade in, and the screen is split in two. And the narrator tells us that Tom is hoping that his expectations will line up with reality. And the cool thing that they do in this scene is, on one half of the screen, it says expectations. And the scene plays out the way Tom wants it to. And simultaneously, on the other half of the screen, it says reality, and we see what actually happens. And Tom thinks he's going to Summer's apartment to win her back, to have a night of passionate lovemaking. The passionate romantic in him has one last ditch romantic fantasy. Yep. And the reality is Summer's actually engaged, and she's invited Tom to her engagement party. And when he runs out on the street after that is the moment Brad's talking about where the whole world falls away around him and he is an isolated figure. It's 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 crushing and it hits you like a punch to the gut. But what a beautiful piece of movie making. I mean, it's just superb movie making. In Summer's defense, because I'm the one coming to Summer's defense now. Nice. She says in the movie that she was not engaged at the wedding, yep. which was like, let's say Saturday. 
And Friday, so a week later, yep. she was engaged. Right. So in her defense, it wasn't an engagement party. Right. It was just a regular party. Okay. That's fair. I, I'm Thank coming you for coming. defense I now, appreciate man. that. Yeah. I appreciate that. But I will say, I, man, I think the thing that tears me apart about this movie and the reason I hated it so much is because it's so honest. Yeah. And because... I've been there. Yeah. I've been at that moment where you're walking down the street by yourself, where you're sitting in your bedroom by yourself. And it doesn't matter if you have a million friends around you consoling you. Yep. You are in the world by yourself and there's nothing anybody can do about yeah. it. And this is the one moment in the movie too, is that until that point, everything Summer did, I was able to take a note and say, okay, Tom misread this. Or Summer was up front and said, I don't want this. Right. And Tom didn't listen. And so you could be hashtag Team Summer all the way until this moment. And it's a moment where, and this is what I love about the script of this movie. This The writers had enough guts to write a flaw into Summer. And she, she does something. Not have it- she does something that's unforgivable. She really, truly does. She and there's not no- have invited him to that party. Exactly. And at the end of the movie, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, looking at a newly married Summer, says, you should have told me. And you shouldn't have danced with me at that wedding. And she says... I know. And that's what I love about this movie is that it has the guts to write a flaw into her character. And that's not to say Tom doesn't also do things that are screwed up that he shouldn't have done. But you can't be 100 percent on either party's side. And, you know, we've we've both been through breakups before. When someone breaks up, half the friends side with one, half the friends side with the other. It's like you can do no wrong. This movie refuses to allow us to have perfect people. It's never that black and white. Exactly. This movie is the most honest movie that I think I've ever seen. Yeah. About dating, uh, not just dating, dating in the modern society. And this movie is brave enough to take an honest look at what happens when two people enter a dating relationship and want different things out of it and want different things out of it. Yeah, for sure. I guess I would disagree with you a little bit. I think Summer does other things throughout the movie where she is sending mixed signals. Oh, for sure. The whole time of, well, I don't want to be official with you, but I'm going to sleep with you. Right. And so like, there are things throughout the movie where I go, man, like, yes, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's expectations are way too high, but she's letting him keep them there. Yeah. By And not just letting, but she's in reinforcing them to be there. One thing I notice is that the scene where they finally do have sex is yeah. that he's looking in the mirror in the bathroom and he's telling himself, like, there's a reason she's in your bed. Yeah. And it hits me in that moment as a viewer that they have completely different, I guess, worldviews about sex and dating. And in his mind, you don't have sex with someone that you're not ready to commit to. And in her mind... It's not that she just wants to have, you know, free sex, free love, but it's that she doesn't see those as competing things. She doesn't see those as things that, you know, cancel out. I can have sex with somebody and also not want to be tied down to them forever, forever. I I don't necessarily know that we should say that we should say that she's wrong in that instance. You and I might believe that she's wrong because we have a similar worldview to Tom. But at the same time, like she's very upfront about like, this is how I view the world. This is how I live my life. And Tom signed up for it. Yeah. And it's kind of on him in some ways that like he doesn't like where it goes. Yeah. I fully see her point of view and understand how she could get there. Yeah. I just disagree with it. Absolutely. And I will say one of the most confusing parts of the movie for me was early in the movie. They show them breaking up. 
Yep. Like the first time they break up before the weddings, not that they get back together. Yeah, yeah, scene, yeah. But you know what I mean? They show them breaking up, they're eating pancakes and all that. And she says, well, look at how much we've been fighting lately. We fight all of the time. But then in the rest of the movie, they never show them fighting. But see, I don't know if that's actually a flaw with the movie because you have to remember that the way the movie's progressing is how Tom is remembering their relationship. Yeah. And then when you get to the end of the movie, the beautiful part is that Tom's sister says, you need to look back at your relationship without the rose colored glasses and think about how you guys just weren't compatible. And it's like something finally clicks in Tom's mind and he looks back and he actually does see, Oh yeah, we were fighting all the time and she just wasn't happy and she was miserable. You know, the scales kind of fall off of his eyes in a way. And so I wonder if there may have been fights that we just weren't seeing in the movie because Tom just was refusing to remember them at that point. For me, that was like a plot hole of like, he said, you know, Zoe Deschanel says, we argue all the time, but then you never actually see them arguing. You only see her looking dissatisfied with her eyes. I think that's a good point. And I think that before we start arguing, it's time for us to pop open this bottle of Heaven Hill White Label. What do you say? All right. So today we are checking out Heaven Hill White Label. Now, before we get into this, I have to give a little preface because Heaven Hill White Label has kind of a storied history. It used to be a bottled and bond six year bourbon, meaning 100 proof, and it was aged six years. And it was one of, from what I've heard, the best budget bourbons you could possibly get. Now, Brad and I had tried the green label Heaven Hill, which is 90 proof. And so I was super excited to try white label because it was it was aged just as long, but it was 100 proof. And then you screwed up. I didn't screw up. So what what happened was <laughs> last year, Heaven Hill announced that they were going to stop producing the bottled and bond six year version. Okay. And so what they did instead is they pulled all of that out of uh, circulation and they replaced it with a white label that is 80 proof. So. So this is not what we originally wanted to get. Womp, 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 womp. Way to go, Heaven Hill. I know, right? Now, Heaven Hill has already come back out and said that they are going to re-debut their Bottled and Bond this fall, but it's going to be like in a way more aged version. It's going to be like $40 a bottle. So I would say publicity stunt, but man, they've won me over with Green Label. So The Green Label is so good. They can do nothing So what we're actually sipping on today is a white label that's 80 proof. So it's, it's more watered down than the Green Label we had. They only sell it in the state of Ohio in one liter or 1.75 liter. So I got a liter and it was 12.25 for the liter. So we're talking about like a $10 fifth if you could get it in a fifth. Yeah. So Brad, knowing that this is not bottled in bond and it is not six years, let's go into our nosing and our tasting here. What are you picking up on the nose? Not a ton. Yeah. I, like I'm trying to, I'm trying to drag things out of this that just aren't there. No, they're really there's not. A, I mean, there's a little bit of sweetness. It's a bourbon. You can tell that it's a little sweet. Yep. But outside of that characteristic uh, sweetness of which there's not a ton. Yeah. It's unimpressive. Yeah, I feel like they really watered this down. I feel like it's just from the nose. It yeah. seems like it's lost a lot of character from what we had on the green label. Yeah. What do you uh, What are you getting on the taste here, Brad? Water. Mm. Water and ethanol. It's really sweet. 
It's got some spice. It tastes like uh, it tastes oaky for sure, but nothing spectacular. No, it. I mean, it doesn't taste like it's aged long enough to me. Yeah. Now it has no age statement, which means four it, years. Four years, right? Yeah. Um, it just doesn't feel like it's been that in the barrel that long. Yeah. So I, l- let's go ahead and score out nose and taste. Four three. Four and th- wow, that bad, huh? Yeah, I'm not really getting anything that I could say is good. I'm getting little hints of things, but man, like what? It, what is it actually doing in my mouth? Not that much. Not much at all. So Brad says a four on the nose, a three on the taste. I'm going to go ahead and give it a five on the nose, and I'll also give it a five on the taste. It's unspectacular. It's pretty much middle of the road. I'm not offended by it. I don't think it's bad. It just yeah. doesn't distinguish itself in any way. Which I would almost say makes it bad, closer to bad than average. All right. What do you think about the finish, Brad? I'm going to... I don't know, man. It, it's not that good. Mm-hmm. It's just okay. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say a four. It does go down my palate. That's a fact. Yes, <laughs> it is a fact. I actually don't know if that's even a thing. Does anything go down your palate? It goes down your gullet. Across my palate, into my gullet. There you go. Okay. So you give it a four. Uh, Yeah, there's just really not much finish to it. I get a little bit of like a, as I breathe out afterwards, like a cinnamon red hot candy. Um, It's, this bourbon is super sweet. It's like sugar water with a little bit of spice to it. Um, Which again, you know, you guys know that I like my sweet bourbons. So I'm probably going to come down a little bit more positively on this than Brad is. Um, But the finish is just not there. I'm going to give it a four as well. I, this might, this is going to sound bad and it might sound amateuristic. You can just taste when something's low quality. Yeah, for sure. And to me, I can't get past that right now. Yeah. Overall balance. What do you think? I mean, it's bad all across. So once again, is that a 10 or a one? <laughs> uh, I'll give it a six on balance. Okay. Yeah. I think I'll also give it a six on balance. I mean, it is again, it's a, it's a, a below average at best bourbon yes. and it is consistently below average all the way across the board. Right. So as far as value would go, how much did you pay for Heaven Hill Green Label? Heaven Hill Green Label was probably about the same. It was about $12. This was $12 for a liter, which would make it like $10 for a fifth. I would never pay that much, the same amount for this much more of bad. No. Now, Heaven Hill Green Label, they don't sell it in Ohio. It's like I have to go to Kentucky to get it. But I don't know if it's fair for us to compare it to Green Label. Just as it stands, as a bourbon, whatever it is, is it worth $12 for a liter? Four out of ten. No. Four? Wow. It's that bad to you. I, I'm not enjoying this. Oh, I don't enjoy it either. I've been using it in my house as a mixer. Yeah. And it's a good mixer. Yeah. And especially for $12, you can get a lot worse whiskey bottom shelf than this. Like, it's sweet. It does its job. It doesn't. It's not super harsh. So I like that about it. But I'm telling you guys, this is not what you want to get to drink neat it's a mixer. Yes. I'm going to give it a six on value. So that puts me out to a 26 out of 50, which I don't think it's even that good. Brad, that puts you out to a 21 out of 50. Would you say that that's a more accurate score of how you feel? Um, It's probably pretty close. So that brings our average to a 23 and a half out of 50, which I feel is pretty fair for a $12 whiskey. And it's $12 for a liter. Below average. Yeah. If 25 was average... It's below average. Yeah, for sure. Not terribly far beneath average. Would you recommend Robert? No, I would not. I wouldn't either. Yeah. I don't think it's terrible. Yeah. I'm not like, you know, throwing it across the room. Right. No. Well, like you know, said, if you When need... there's green label out there, you don't need white label. Right. For sure. If you need a mixer, 
pick it up. Yeah. It's fine. There, and there's multiple bourbons you could use as mixers. This is one of them. And that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Not every bourbon that has to be produced has to be perfect. Exactly. So you need these bourbons to appreciate your really good bourbons. Yeah. And sometimes you need a bad relationship to be able to appreciate a good one. Ooh. So we're going to get back into talking about 500 Days of Summer. That was a heck of a transition. Thank you, sir. Good job. So that was Heaven Hill White Label. Uh, below average scores for both of us. And I think that's pretty accurate. It was yeah. a below average bourbon. Kind of a bummer to end the summer of bourbon on... A low note. The summer of... I didn't even realize. The 500 summer. days of summer of bourbon. Oh, I didn't even think about that. The correlations go deep, man. Yeah, man. So let's talk a little bit more about this movie. Now, when it came out, it, it debuted to pretty glowing reviews, actually. I feel like this is a movie that would, like, win... It, what is it? Best Palm at the con? I don't think this movie would go over well at the con film. I don't think it's pretentious enough to go over at the uh, con film festival. But is um, summer pretentious enough? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> American movie critics did love this movie. And famously, Roger Ebert gave this movie four stars. Wow. Four, four out of four stars. I was going to say, if you don't know about Roger Ebert, he gives four out of four stars. Do you know why he does that? I feel like nobody else does a zero to four rating system. Oh, that's interesting. Cause I feel like most when, when people were still writing newspaper reviews, I think four stars was like the standard. Uh-oh. Now that we're like primarily online, I think we see a lot of fives and, and tens well, and things IMDb. like that. Yeah, exactly. So Roger Ebert gave this the highest mark he could give four out of four stars. And he says, Tom opens the film and he's actually wrong about this because he thinks Tom's narrating, but he says, Tom opens the film by announcing that it will not be your typical love story. And then, and then Ebert says, are you like me? And when you realize a movie is on autopilot, you get impatient with it. How long can the characters pretend they don't know how the story will end? Here is a rare movie that begins by telling us how it will end and is about how the hero has no idea why. And that's kind of one of the things I love about this movie is it's about Tom's journey to figure out that he may not have been wrong about what he thinks about love, but that his feelings were misplaced and that there's a reason these kind of things happen in life. And part of growing up is understanding that sometimes your feelings get misplaced. You know, the most interesting thing is I feel like we just talked about American Beauty like a month, month and a half ago. Yeah. And that's another movie where at the very start of the movie... There's a narrator who tells you exactly what's going to happen at the end of the movie. Yep. And yet in this movie, in American Beauty, I feel like Kevin Spacey knows why he's dead. Yeah. At the end of the movie. Yeah. And in this movie, it might not be Tom narrating, but the narrator knows that Tom doesn't know why he's wrong. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a great point. I want to get in a little bit to our analysis of the movie. And I kind of feel like we've been doing that the whole time anyway. But, you know, I was watching this movie... In 2019, and it came out 10 years ago, before the era of hashtag Me Too. And yet I was really blown away by how I think a lot of this movie is teaching guys to know when they're in the wrong about things. Yeah. And not in a super preachy way and not in a way that's like woke. But I wondered when I first started it, oh, is this movie going to be like really cringy and not hold up? Because the first scenes that we see of Summer are through Tom's friend's eyes and the first thing they call her is a skank. Right. And the reason they say she's a skank is because the rumor is that she wouldn't talk to one of them in the copy room. Right. And so because she didn't talk to a guy, she's now a skank. So I'm going into this movie like, oh, man, this is the route we're going to take here. But what I really liked about what the movie continually did 
is that it undercut those dynamics. So like the guys all say, oh, she must be terrible. She must be a skank. But then in the next scene, she gets in the elevator with Tom and says, oh, I love the Smiths. And Tom immediately has his world rocked because he's like, oh, I thought you were going to be something that you're clearly not. Right. And I thought that was just kind of emblematic of the whole movie. You know, every, every at every turn, Summer is defying what Tom expects her to be or what he wants her to be. Or what he's told she's going to be. Exactly. And that's for better or for worse. Yeah, it, it is really interesting. I think the the only thing that the narrator at the very start of the movie or somewhat early in the movie, he talks about how like Summer has this like magic aura about mm-hmm. her that, you know, she works at this ice cream shop and ice cream sales go through the roof and this song grows in popularity yep. and, and all that. So there's a part of me that was like annoyed with the narrator for telling me all that because that made me feel worse and worse for Tom. It's almost like Tom didn't have a choice but to fall in love with her. Hmm. You know what I mean? And continually get screwed over and over because his idea of a magical romance wasn't going to be met by this girl that he had no choice but to fall in love with because she's so perfect and so amazing. Yeah. I think that probably was just a whimsical choice by the director to put that in there. And it was interesting and funny, but to me, on a deeper level, I was like, well, shoot, like, obviously Tom's going to fall in love with her. She's got this, like, magic about her that's otherworldly almost. So I, I don't know. That that annoyed me a little bit. I do think that the first half of the movie is is definitely um, more uneven than the second half. Yeah. I thought that they absolutely nailed the second half of the movie. Like, from the moment you were talking about where Tom punches the guy in the bar... Yeah. From, from that point to the end of the movie, every every directorial decision, every piece of writing, every line of dialogue is just pitch perfect it to me. It clicks. It really does. Yeah. But because of that, you know, it's not a perfect movie. Right. So, Brad, you know, I know that we've had a little bit of conversation in our last top five episode about whether you think this is even a comedy or not. And you definitely came down on the side of, no, it's not. It's a drama. Right. But do you think this is a good movie? And what kind of score would you give this movie? I think that this is, it's one of the best movies I've seen about dating Mm -hmm. for the fact that it's so honest. Yeah. It's just brutally honest. It takes you to places where if you've experienced a major breakup, this movie takes you right back there. Yep. Which makes you want to give it a one out of 10 because you don't want to go back there all the time. (laughs) Right. Um, I would give this movie an eight and a half out of 10. Eight and a half. All right. Yeah. Right there. Right there in Goodfellas territory. Yeah. It's, it's. I would put it as better than Goodfellas. Wow. I'm going to lower Goodfellas to like 8.4. <laughs> but right. yeah, 8.5. It's a it's a really good movie. It has a lot to offer. And it's interesting to see new directors sometimes. Yeah. Because like you said earlier, I feel like they're free of a lot of the restraints, whether it's because they're working with you know, a more indie type studio or whatnot. But you just get to see him do a lot of weird, fun, interesting things in this movie. Yeah. That work really well. Absolutely. I'm going to give this movie a nine. I don't think it's perfect. I do think it's it's one of the best. And, you know, again, I disagree with Brad. I think it's one of the best romantic comedies of the 2000s. It really is because it kind of upends what we expect out of a romantic comedy. And it does go to some dramatic places. But like Brad said, it's a really honest movie. And if you're willing to go on this journey with Tom... And it really is a journey of figuring himself out, of self-discovery. Then I think this movie is so rewarding. And so I'm going to go ahead and give it a 9, which brings us out to an 8.75. Would you recommend? I absolutely would recommend this movie. How about you? 100% I would recommend this movie. But we want to know what you think. So why don't you get on social media? Where can they find us, Brad? At Film Whiskey. 
Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Oh, so pretty much everywhere. Pretty much everywhere. You could send us an email, fandwpodcast at gmail.com. You could give us a call. Call our call-in line at 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. We will be back next week talking about the 1984 Best Picture winner, Amadeus. You know what I was just thinking? What's that? They actually can't find us everywhere. We haven't made a MySpace page yet. Oh, we got to get on MySpace, dude. All right. Let's move on that. In the meantime... In the meantime, join us next week for Amadeus. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. <laughs>